wanted to continue today with uh, 1 John and uh, focus uh, especially on chapter 5, verse 5 to 9. And let me read there. And the topic is water and blood. And I wanted to try to explain what John may be doing with, uh, with this concept. Who is the one who overcomes the world? But he who believes that Jesus is the Son of God. This is the one who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ. Not with the water only, but with the water and with the blood. It is the Spirit who testifies, because the Spirit is the truth. For there, there, there are these three that testify, the Spirit and the water and the blood, and the three are in agreement. Uh, I think the problem of the blood and water is the problem of bringing together the idea of God, deity, and humanity. The false teachers want to separate the deity and humanity. They want to talk about the, the spirit or the water separate from the blood or the humanity. Uh, this is not a problem on God's side, you know, the, the idea of bringing these two things together. It's not a problem with the Spirit. It's not a problem with who God is. I believe that it's a problem on the human side. And the problem then is on the blood side of this, the humanity. And that's precisely what these false teachers are questioning. They're questioning the humanity of Jesus. This may go against our just basic instinct. You know, I think that our tendency is to say, well, isn't the problem with the deity of Christ? And we look back on, you know, uh, the New Testament. In fact, scholarship for the past century has really made this mistake. It's imagined that what the first century problem consisted of was the deity of Christ and that in some way this deity slowly developed, you know, so that in a book like John or the Gospel of John, we have a stronger affirmation than in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. I think this is precisely wrong. It's a wrong understanding of the history. That is that in the first century, they had no problem with the deity of Christ. When they were confronted with Jesus, uh, they understood, here is one that we should worship. Here is one that we should fear. Here is one that we bow down to. You know, let's go back and think of the scenes in the gospel. Uh, that when Jesus performed miracles, or he did, you know, commanded the wind to cease, they're... they're idea was oh we're in the presence of God their problem was how do we connect this understanding that this uh, the uh, that Christ is God with the Old Testament understanding they're going to use different concepts they'll use the concept of wisdom they'll use the concept of the son of God or the Davidic Messiah of, you know, we talked today that even the prophet, you know, Jesus is called prophet, priest, and king. And these things come together so that they attach their understanding of who Jesus is as a kind of fulfillment of these concepts. But the Jews did not think of any of these concepts, Messiah, Son of God, wisdom, prophet, priest. They didn't, they weren't thinking of any of these categories in terms of deity. Uh, they just thought this was a human realm and there's the human and the divine and never the twain shall meet. And that's 
what's happening here, I think, with the false teachers, and that's the discussion around water and blood. I think this is a shorthand way for John to combat this false teaching that would separate the two out. Think here at the baptism of Jesus, the Spirit descends in the form of a dove. And the voice from heaven confirms it. You know, gee, this is Jesus. He's my son. Water is the shorthand way of talking about the Holy Spirit. Water is the shorthand way of talking about deity. It's the blood part of the equation that is most troubling for the false teachers. And of course, it's the incarnation in which God takes on flesh and blood. He takes on human existence. That's the most troubling part. And that's the key part. That's the most uh, you know, serious thing that's happening in the life of Christ. If we can understand this idea of blood and water, I think we can get at the correct understanding of the meaning of blood. I think we've often misinterpreted this, misunderstood this. Um, I think that it's precisely a correct understanding of blood and how blood goes with water, how the humanity and deity go together that makes Christianity what it is. There is a gap between God and man. There is an a- there's alienation and Christianity is about defeating this gap. But whose side is you know, the problem on? Is it on the side of God or is it on the side of deity or on humanity rather? Uh, I think it's not on the side of God that God stands like the father in the story of the prodigal son with his arms outspread waiting for us to return. The problem is that will we return to God? Will we come to God? Christ as the God-man defeats the problem on our side of the, the alienation. Uh, You know, if we think of it in terms of a dualism, he overcomes this dualism. It's not a real dualism. We could look at human effort. We could look at human religion. Uh, We could look at the human project as aimed at reconciling blood and water, deity and humanity. But the way humans would do this is to spill blood, right, through violence. They would destroy humanity, they would destroy the flesh, they would destroy one another in the name of deity. Right? Religion is violent. I think that's just true of this world's religions. Christianity is to defeat this human project. Sometimes even Christianity is interpreted as a religion built on death. To get at God. It's a religion pictured as the spilt blood and death is the means that we have access to God. I think this is precisely wrong. In a reinterpreted understanding of communion that I, I actually gave you this morning. We're describing a shared life fully dedicated to God. Completely participating in God through the humanity of Christ is not this is uh, Paul in 1 Corinthians is not the cup of blessing which we bless a sharing in the blood of Christ 
Is not the bread which we break a sharing in the body of Christ? 1 Corinthians 10, 16. The Christ we share in is not the dead Christ. The Christ we share in is not the crucified Christ. The body which gives us sustenance is not the one you can chew up and swallow in that sense. It is the living Christ we share in the fellowship. It is blood and water, God and man joined together. This is the overcoming of the you know, dualism between blood and water. This is the overcoming of Gnosticism in which heaven and earth are forever alienated from one another. At the same time, this is the overcoming of every form of violence. In Ephesians 2, 13 to 15, Paul says, But now in Christ Jesus, you who were formerly far off, have been brought near by the blood of Christ. That is, there's two peoples. There's the Jews and the Gentiles. He himself is our peace who made both groups into one and broke down the barrier of the dividing wall by abolishing in his flesh the enmity, which is the law of commandments contained in ordinances, so that in himself he might make the two into one, into one new man, thus establishing peace. There was alienation between the Jew and the Gentile. And this was the law, this was what the law marked. And this is what has been overcome in Christ. John says, we are talking about a fellowship embodied. If we walk in the light as he himself is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus his son cleanses us from all sin. The blood is representative of this embodied life together. It's a a passage that's all about eternal life. In the interpretive mode of the false teachers, the blood and water could not mix. In their understanding, the blood would be subsumed by the water. The humanity would be subsumed by the deity. But in what John is saying, it is through the water and the blood that we are saved. 1 John 5, 6, this is the one who came by water and blood. Jesus Christ, not with the water only. He's clearly saying it's not deity only. It's not the pre-existent Christ that saves us. It's the incarnate Christ. It's the life of Christ. It's the death of Christ. It's the resurrected Christ. There is a kind of human tendency to close the economy of blood off from the economy of water, to separate out the two. And the closed economy would not allow the divine to take up residence in this world. That was the Jewish problem that, you know, they, they, when they had Christ, the incarnate God, there before them, that they're overcoming. This is part of our problem in rightly understanding the blood. I think due to bad theology that there is a split between the, you know, we tend to emphasize spilt blood and not the embodied life of Jesus. Uh, we tend to emphasize the blood succumbing to death. Uh, 
But that's not the story of the Old Testament sacrifices. And maybe that's where we need to go back. What was the meaning of the blood sacrifices in Israel? The theological meaning of blood in the Old Testament is not to relate it to death, but to a life dedicated to God. The meaning of the sacrifices is to be found you know, in the original story of Abraham, in which Isaac is one who is dedicated to God, and this is fulfilled in Christ. The word that we have in Philippians is, you know, the Greek word is kenotic love. It's a self-giving love. It is God himself who renames the mountain Yahweh or Yireh, which can be translated, the Lord is seen. In the mutual self-giving trust of Abraham, Isaac, and Yahweh, there is a picture then of the inner life of God himself. God is actually represented there in the story by Abraham. Christ is represented by Isaac. And it is one that is perpetually re-dramatized in the sacrifices in the temple. That is, it's the story of Abraham and Isaac that makes sense, pointing toward ultimately the sacrifice of Christ. The God should be known as kenotic love, as self-giving love. That's the new revelation that begins with Abraham and we come to realize fully in Christ. It's one that, uh, you know, even in Abraham, I think there was the beginning of an understanding. But in this understanding, the blood sacrifices symbolize a life, life devoted to God. And it's aimed at undoing the way the sacrificial economies, the violent economies of this world would work. It's a displacement of a human economy with a divine intertrinitarian economy. This is, you know, if you get if you do a little bit with mythology, I don't know if you've ever read the story of Romulus and Remus, and but it's there at the base of every uh, classical story of the founding of a city. This is Rene Girard. He talks about human sacrifices, and they're always aimed at warding off violence. And violence is seen to be the kind of original chaos. And we're trying then through these sacrifices to restore harmony in the midst of this violence. That's not Christianity and that's not Judaism. We don't begin with an original violence. We begin with God. We begin with the peace of God. And this is, you know, it's not the pagan economy that is being reduplicated in the Old Testament sacrifices. So in the, you know, the Day of Atonement, the goat of the Lord, what is symbolized in the goat of the Lord on the Day of Atonement is life. It's life dedicated to God. It's associated with the temple in its very center, the holy center. And the goat is the symbol of life given to God, dedicated to God. I think despite the misunderstanding that it in some way is an alliance with death. Israel's priestly offering sought to reestablish order and harmony by returning again and again to the way of life first established by Abraham and Isaac. So the goat was a positive orientation. It will 
you know, if we understand the goat through the work of Christ, the idea is it's restoring, it's elevating, it's bringing a genuinely good and meritorious movement toward life that reiterates and perfects the life as it was intended to be a participation in the economy of God. And so in this context, the Day of Atonement is you know, the very presence of true life. It releases or eradicates death. It's not a dealing in death. The priest is not bringing death before God. He's bringing life dedicated to God. When Jesus enters the Holy of Holies, he's not bringing death before God. He's bringing himself, resurrected, ascended. It's the life of Christ. You know, in in everything it means, it's the incarnation of Christ and all that includes. The death of Christ is certainly there, but it's the life, death, resurrection, and ascension. That movement that is involved in the work of atonement. So, uh, I think this is what's happening. It's the perfection of what began with Abraham. Uh... You know, the cross, where does that... Well, the cross and the sacrifice that's happening there, that's of pagan origin. And what they would do to Christ is crucify him in the sacrificial logic of this secular pagan order. But Christ is not succumbing to this logic, separating out blood and water, separating out deity and humanity. He's defeating this logic. He's defeating death. In a pagan sense, the death of Christ would forever separate blood and water. In the proper sense of the New Testament, blood and water are forever joined through the life, death, and resurrection of Christ. Um, Really, from a pagan perspective, the cross is a sacrifice in a proper sense. It's destruction of the agent Christ, who is causing social instability. He's, you know, one man must die that the nation might be saved. That's pagan thought. That's pagan thinking. But of course, what the high priest says prophetically is true in the sense that the kingdom of God is established in and through this sacrifice. But it's a defeating of pagan sacrifice. So even as the powers and principalities surround him, you know, in an effort to close off his communion with God, Christ lives according to Israel's sacrificial ideals. He continues in the style of the burnt offering, of the purification offering. He continues, that is, to live in the way that is appropriate for one who dwells in God's presence in the temple. He continues in every way to choose life over any alliance with the forces of death and violence. He could have called a legion of angels to rescue him. Christ has no, you know, uh, he does not call upon violence, but he's defeating violence in and through life itself. Those who crucified him, it's a typical political sacrifice. We always need to crucify somebody that the nation might be saved. 
But Jesus goes further. He takes what the world intended. They intended it for evil and he unites it with God's good and proper purpose. He unites, you know, he overcomes death in and through his own divine nature. He gives himself in kenotic love, gives himself completely. The one who created the world recreates the world in and through the incarnation, in and through his life, death, and resurrection. That's what's being celebrated on Mount Zion. Morning and night, what's being ritually practiced, it's not a celebration of death. It's not a celebration of the shedding of blood, but it's the celebration of life and life given to God. And so the deformed sacrificial practices of the pagan religions, or perhaps even a misunderstood Christianity, misses the sacrificial orientation that is given to us in and through the life of Christ. An orientation that allows us to participate in God. You know, it's sort of like when light and darkness come together, Christ penetrates the darkness. Easter Sunday is the confrontation of one world system with another world system. And the good news is that since Moriah, Israel's God is the God of life and not death. Blood and water are forever joined as the Spirit of God gives life, eternal life to humanity. We might picture this as they did in early atonement theory, the idea of a recapitulation. Christ recapitulates, he redoes humanity's struggle against evil. And in so doing, he achieves the victory that humanity could not. He who is from the beginning, he recreates all things. He recapitulates the human entirely in his life, birth, you know, death, resurrection. Uh, he's remade what it means to be human. In, in another way, we might just say, here's the first true human. He does not lapse into sin, into inhumanity. He never yields to temptation, to the turn away from God. He enacts in every instance of his life the divine life that we all then now have access to. Humanity was meant for deity. Humanity was meant to participate in the person of God. Paul says the disobedience of Adam which brings death into the world is undone by Christ's obedience and death. Christ's life affects a narrative reversal. The story changes up. The story unwinds in a new way. He inaugurates the story in a new way. As John will talk about it, you know, he was there before the foundation of the world and now the world is being refounded in the one who is recreating all things. He saves not simply in his death, but in his life, death, and resurrection. We are studying on Tuesday night, we're doing the book of Hebrews. And in Hebrews, he's focused on the idea of Christ as high priest. Christ is the one who mediates. What does he mediate? Well, he mediates all of humanity. That's what it means. He mediates, uh, in fact, all of material creation 
And he mediates all of who God is so that blood and water are brought together. Humanity and deity are brought together. The cosmos and the creator are brought together for eternity. So Jewish sacrificial rites were not like the pagan rites. You know, that were, uh, it was a, a picture, you know, if you go back to Aristotle, Aristotle pictures an originary chaos. And that's just summing up what all pagans believed. There's an original violence. And everything then is built upon getting rid of violence through violence. You use different kinds of violence. You know, you use one violence to, to defeat another violence. The Jewish or the Christian economy does not need death for life because we have God who is the giver of life. And God does not work through death. He does not found life on death. But he's defeating death and evil. It's an economy of infinity, of eternality, that envisions this world as open to the life of God, open to that which is beyond this world. The problem with a pagan religion or a Christianity that has turned pagan is that we imagine this is a closed economy in which we are continually given over to death and we don't realize the defeat of death in Christ. A way of, you know, this is the postmodern thing. They've actually re- recognized something very biblical. That we do identity through difference. You know, the, the knowledge of good and evil. There's good and there's evil. They're different, but we do identity. We identify the one in and through the other. This is Wilhelm Friedrich Hegel, but this is also Jacques Derrida. Both read Genesis chapter 3 and say, look. This is identity through difference, and this is the only way we have of doing identity. This is the Eastern principle, too, the yin-yang, you know. Well, the yin is only possible with the yang, and the yang is only possible with the yin, so the yin inheres in the yang. <laughs> Let me say it in good and evil terms. The good is only possible through the evil, and the evil is only possible through the good, so that the evil inheres in the good. You need the good for the evil, and you need the evil for the good. That's a total contradiction. That breaks down. And that's the economy that this world functions on. This economy is one in which you would destroy any difference, you would destroy humanity. You would spill blood in order to attain attain, uh, spirit. So identity through difference is inherently violent. You know, when you take this up within yourself, who am I? Well, I'm not you, or I'm not a foreigner, or I'm not one of those, you know, dot, dot, dot. And so we identify who we are over and against the other. It's inherently violent. We do not do identity through difference. We do not build upon this. This was the great discovery of Friedrich Nietzsche. You know, he talks about Dionysus and Apollo, the god of, uh, you know, wine with his indiscriminate violence, and the god of music with a discriminating violence. But these two violences are set against one another. Nietzsche says, well, we need the discriminating violence. As Christians, we'd say, no, we do not need violence whatsoever. 
We have the life of God given to us in Christ. The blood and water, the divine and human, are brought together. It does not point to an originary violence, but to an original peace. The peace within God himself. So we're torn between two poles. You know, we, the way you get this in, is the idea of equivalence, of univocity, of everything reducing to one thing. This is Buddhism, you know, all things are one. Or it's equivocity, that everything is, is uh, you know, uh, spread out. There's only difference. It's either Apollo or Dionysus. Pure identity or pure difference. Either way you go, and it's all the same way, it doesn't matter whether you go with the East and you go with Univocity or you go, and that, even that category is mistaken, you're, go, you're talking about a continual struggle. But life conquers death in Christ. The Yahweh goat is a goat of life. Uh, violence is not overcome by violence. Death is not overcome by death. Think here of the priest, you know, who's going into the Holy of Holies. The battle is not out there with something else. The battle is within himself to faithfully live out the call to remain pure, to stay awake, to not succumb to fear, and to be the very embodiment of the words he bears written across his forehead, holy unto Yahweh. That's our struggle, to be holy. How much more will the blood of Christ, Paul says, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God. For this reason, he is the mediator of a new covenant. So that since a death has taken place for the redemption of the transgressions that were committed under the first covenant, those who have been called may receive the promise of the internal, eternal inheritance. So within Second Temple Jewish thought, it is right to say that a way of reconciliation has been opened up, which overcomes all violence, and this is the way of the Yahweh goat. This is the way of Abraham and Isaac, who reestablishes the original pattern of creation as praise, as genuine, self-giving freedom before God. And this is an affirmation, this is a fulfillment of the temple economy. Christ is the true form of God, the true shape of humanity towards which the temple pointed. The early Christians turned to 2 Samuel 7 in the Septuagint and read that while David hoped to build the Lord a house, God also promised to build a house for David by resurrecting his offspring. These two houses intersect in Christ, in the, the, the son of David. The house of blood, the humanity, and the house of God, the house built upon spirit, of a cosmic dwelling in which all things live and move and have their being. The Messiah is the dwelling place for Yahweh and humanity to come together, for blood and water to mix eternally. The association between Jesus and the temple is articulated then. You know, think when Jesus enters the temple, 
And of course, he's identifying himself as the temple. Destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. What temple did he mean? He meant the temple of his body. Here is the true temple. Here is the one who gives us access to the Holy of Holies. Here is the one through whom we have life. So death is what is overcome. Indeed, but this is not the problem of God. This is the problem of humanity. Nothingness, violence, death. These do not challenge God. Death is not some, something which God becomes you know, involved with. He passes death by. It's nothingness. It's, he has no regard for it. He dies, they kill him, and he's raised again inevitably. It is literally nothing to him. It has no part to play in the way by which God, you know, or in uh, uh, who he is or in his desire to create a new humanity. We could even take this insight and apply it to the problem of evil. Evil is that which builds on violence and death. Inasmuch as we imagine that God is dealing in death, unfortunately we have him dealing in evil, I'm afraid. So the problem is not one corrected through death or succumbing to death. The problem is one in which we forsake the way of death, the orientation to death, a life of violence. You don't confront the problem head on, you know, by screaming at it or stomping on it. But rather one simply lives harmoniously again. One embraces the light again, despite every barrier. That the head of Satan is crushed, but how is the head of Satan crushed? Not through a, a violent, you know, not through Jesus in some way, uh, you know, dealing out death. Jesus absorbs that orientation. John says, whatever is born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world. Our faith in which blood and water are forever fused. Let's sing our hymn of it.